0: UFO Miss September 12, 2007. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word for us. Hey, look, y'all, we found out last week that because Jesus dwells in the midst of His people, vividly so, He is one who is not to be trifled with. You cannot have a casual relationship with this Jesus. And when approaching Him and having any kind of real relationship with Him, we find that He's a real friend. A friend who's not afraid to say the hard things to you. That is to find things in your life that legitimately need to be condemned. Stuff that needs to be confronted in you. But at the same time, He'll also find things that He can commend in your life. Someone that will be an encouragement to you. In other words, I tried to suggest to you that Jesus was the friend that you've really been looking for in that way. And the truth of the matter is that you need all kinds of these people in your life as they manifest the presence of Jesus in and around you. But there's something else that you need. There's more than that. Because to be honest with you, if you think about it, encouragement and um, confrontation are sort of uh, cerebral uh, ideas. In other words, they're primarily abstract things where people give you insights and feedback on how you come across or what's going on with you, according to them, which, again, we can't live without. But I want to suggest you are much more complex. And if you're ever going to begin to deal with some of the things that Jesus confronts His church with in these passages, it's going to take something more. Because we are not just minds. The Bible teaches, and Christianity has always taught, that we're not just minds, but we're also bodies. We're bodies, which for our purposes means that our dysfunction, if it's ever going to be confronted, cannot simply be in the realm of ideas. Uh, Those bad ideas, as it were, have sort of gotten into our bones. They've come out in the way in which we live and the way in which we behave. In other words, simply changing the way in which you think about your problems is not going to be enough. It's not enough for a complete change. What the Bible wants to encourage us is that we also have to change habits, lifestyles, reactions, relationships. It all comes in a total package. Think of it this way. How many of you have ever been... A little bit weirded out when Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount about cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye. Do, do y'all remember these verses? Uh, Jesus has this part where He says, look, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to stumble, then pluck it out. When your first read through the Bible, you're like, okay, <laughs> easy. Put the gun down, Jesus. What are you talking about? Well, throughout the history of the church, we've understood that Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. Rather, I believe Jesus is talking about the particular kinds of sins and the way in which they approach us in the Bible. That is, Jesus says there really are sins of the eye, if you will. There are sins with which you struggle because of the way in which you are looking at something. Does that make sense? You have to change your perspective on what you're struggling with. But there are also sins of the hand. In other words, the thing predominantly that you do stuff with. In other words, you also have to, in order to make a complete assault on the things that you're going through, it takes more than just changing your perspective. You actually have to do something to deal with that dysfunction. It's very interesting. In most of the weddings that I do, I actually get to do a wedding this weekend in Columbus, Georgia. Very excited about that. And at the end of the wedding, after we give sort of the description of what Christians believe about the wedding, most ministers will give what they call charges. In other words, they'll say, look, if what I'm getting ready to say about you is true, that is, you are getting ready to be one, then there's a way in which you're supposed to act. Instructions, practically minded, are given to people. Well, guess what? Jesus does this for every single letter that He gives to the churches. For each message, in each of those things, He charges them with certain issues and He gives them incentive by which to obey. Does that make sense? So we have a list of two things in our our, um, outline tonight. Things that are charged and things that are promised for obedience. Does that make sense? And you need both of them. Okay, first, things that Jesus charges His people to do. i got four of them here that I'm listing. There's a a couple more, but at least that'll get us started. Number one, he comes and he says, do the first things. Do the first things. This one primarily comes to the Ephesian believers. And I find that interesting. Do you remember what the Ephesians were suffering from? You see, the Ephesians were very theologically sound. Theologically rigid and careful. But the problem was, they were totally loveless in their lifestyle with one another. Not good. And so Jesus comes to them and says, Look, in order to deal with that lifelessness, go do the first things. Do the stuff you did before. Now what's interesting about this is, This is usually the exact opposite of what we think. Look, how many times have you ever found yourself not doing or being what you want yourself to be? And you wish so badly that you felt in such a way or that you were motivated from the inside enough to get you to do the things that you're supposed to do. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes for the more religious of you, you actually sit back and wait for God to do it. And you pray very earnestly. You know, God, I just, it's not that I I, I do the wrong things, it's just that I want to do the right things. I wish you would give me a desire to do it. You ever prayed that prayer? Lord, why won't you give me a desire to do these things? In other words, we want the feeling first and then the action to flow out of the feeling. But do you notice that Jesus says just the opposite to these Ephesian believers? And for some of you, this is going to be quite earth-shattering, I promise you. Because He's saying, look, I recognize that you lack feeling, you lack love for each other. So you know what you need to do? Go back and do the stuff that you did at first. Jesus gives them something to do in response to that. Look, all I'm saying is, it very well may be that it is easier for you, listen listen this, listen, to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. Do you follow that? Let me give you an illustration about this. A number of years ago, when I first started doing campus ministry, a number of years ago, a number which shall remain unmentioned in this particular sermon. I began to find that in, in a group, in, like any other group, there were certain people that would come and get involved in our group and got involved in our group at the University of Memphis that were hard to love. I don't know any other way to put it. They were just challenging people to love. I won't, I won't you know go into any detailed descriptions. But to be quite honest with you, as a Christian group, we're supposed to reach out to those kinds of people. And I'm going to go ahead and confess to all of you that for many ways, one of the reasons why I started hanging out with those folks is because I had to. It was my job. Okay, minister boy, go and hang out with that person because we can't stand them. was typically people's reaction, right? And here's the thing. I did it. I sat down. We had these inane conversations that would kind of go to ridiculous lengths. But, you know, you just did it. You sat down with it. You went through the, you did the motions. And here was the odd thing. After about a couple of years of this, I was sitting around a table, and one of the more particularly socially challenging hmm? People in our group was sitting there and all of a sudden somebody else from our group started making fun of him. And actually said a couple things that were very cutting and ugly. That's what I say to my girls, that's ugly. And all of a sudden I found myself getting really, really steamed. And I kind of jumped up and got in the guy's face and I was like, don't you dare talk to that guy that way we had this little fight there right in the middle of the cafeteria at the University of Memphis. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But it was really weird for me to suddenly realize that I loved that person. You see, they started out as incredibly annoying. And with all the wrong motives, I did what I was supposed to do. And suddenly, over time, I began to find in my heart affection for them. Follow me? I acted my way into a feeling rather than waiting for a feeling to get my way into an action. Some of y'all need to hear that desperately. Do the first things. Secondly, second thing Jesus looks at his church and says is that you need to endure patiently. You see, both the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia are told to endure their suffering that they're going through in a patient way. Man, isn't that interesting? I wonder if you find that to be impractical upon first hearing. What do you mean just endure suffering? Um, It sort of reminds me of my old days in high school at at two-a-day football practices. Now, I recognize what 90% of you are thinking is like, you play football? Um, I I choose my words carefully. I was actually on the football team. I didn't say I played football. My words are careful there. I was too small to be playing football. I had no, no, no business whatsoever being on that field. And I was mostly used as a tackling dummy in the process. And I remember what it was like to be out there, and all I could do in the midst of that whole situation was to sit there and just to take it. It was awful. And when I first read this admonition from Jesus to endure suffering patiently, that was kind of what I got brought back to. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I just want you to hucker down and take it. Here comes the suffering. Buckle up. Here it comes. Is that what Jesus is commanding these people to do? Well, I think not. Mostly because of what he says in chapter 2, verse 10. There he looks and he says that the suffering that the church there in Smyrna is going to go through will only last, weird number here, ten days. Ten days. What is John saying by that? I think he's saying at least two things. On the one hand, he says your suffering is going to be limited. It's not forever. It's okay. Jesus is looking at his church and saying, Look, whatever you're going through, it's going to pass. You see, for every person who really goes through suffering, the real temptation in the midst of that suffering is to think that it's permanent. And to think that it's giving a permanent sort of indelible mark upon my soul. And that I'll be inflicted with that for forever. In other words, that life itself is a sad story. But see, Jesus is looking and saying, No, it's for a time, and I'm in control of that time. But the second thing it tells me is is that their suffering was purposeful. It's not for nothing that you're going through this. It's only going to last 10 days. In other words, whatever reason you're going through, and we've talked about this in our small groups this week, uh, with some of you that are involved in our small groups. Whatever the reason for your suffering, Jesus is saying our suffering cannot be because you're being punished. That can't be the reason. Whatever suffering you're going through, it's because God is fashioning and molding and making you to be something that He wants you to be. Your suffering is limited and your suffering is purposeful. That is what Jesus means when He says to endure patiently. Thirdly, Jesus comes and says, you need to wake up. First of all, you need to do the first thing. Second of all, endure patiently. Thirdly, He says to wake up. And I'm going to be honest with you all. This is the hardest one to hear. Of all of the admonitions, this is the difficult one because the church in Sardis, who is told to wake up, had a reputation for being a living church, but it was all form and no substance. A lot of religious activity, but no real reality on the inside. They were going through the motions of following in Christ, but on the inside, no faith, no hope, no love for others. And to be honest with you, I always hesitate to say this because of the ripples that it sends through uh, uh, this group. But look, y'all, why is it that some of you... And, I, and I, look, I know it's only the fourth time this, in the semester, and some of you are here very new, and this is new to you in RUF, and I want to be very careful how I say what I'm getting ready to say. But I mean it with as much affection as I can muster when I say what I'm getting ready to say. Why is it that some of you are so unwilling to consider the possibility that your behavior since you've been here at old miss your your spiritual indifference and, and spiritual lifelessness is not because you've gotten away from god but is actually because you never knew him to begin with why is it that we're so unwilling to entertain that possibility why is that possible why is that so terrifying to us Many times I'll I'll overhear people talking or I'll even have conversations with people who will talk about just an absolute, generalized, spiritual whatever. And at the end of which I'll say, but I mean, you know, I mean, I know I'm still a Christian. You do? How do you know that? Upon what basis do you have that confidence You see, the church at Sardis had an opinion of itself that thought it was to be alive, but in truth, it it, it wasn't. And and the reason for me saying this is not to create some unnecessary panic unless that panic actually creates something worthwhile in you. But what would be the harm in admitting the obvious? What would be the harm to look and say, you know, I don't care about Christianity because I don't care? What would be the harm in saying that? Because the truth of the matter is, is if Christianity is rarely helpful but mostly annoying to you, then why assume that you have any real peace in it and that you have any real part in it? It's very interesting. I mean, people in the, in, in, who, who go away to other cultures, I hear this from a lot of people who leave Ole Miss and leave the bubble. And they say, you know, outside, people could not care less about my Christianity when I left college. I wasn't ready for that. It was a shock to the system. But you know what? Made going to church all that much more real because the people that were there wanted to be there. There's a reality that came from that. Something that encouraged themselves with that. And look, I'm simply asking you: Would it not help you simply to be honest, to go ahead and admit, to stop marking down Christian on your little bubble form when you fill out your application for school, and to admit the truth that the truth is, I really just don't care about this. The truth of the matter is, when it really comes down to it, I cannot stand the fact that God is constantly telling me what He wants me to do. I think for some of you, there will be great freedom and great joy on the other side of that when you honestly acknowledge that. Because then suddenly you're ready to wake up. You're ready to wake up. And you say, well, how can I do that? How is that supposed to be possible? Well, guess what? It depends. If on the one hand, you're looking at yourself and saying, I don't want to wake up. I'm doing fine. When are you done? Why are you going so long? It's okay to be that person. You're welcome here. Please keep considering. But my friends, if that is you, then I simply want to encourage you to go be who you are and have no interest in a cultural Christianity. But for those of you who are sitting there kind of going, "Ah, I hope he's not talking about me. Is that me? Am I the one who's just kind of putting on a pretense? Am I the one who's just sort of dressing it all up? But listen, there were a couple people there in, in Sardis. There were a couple people, Jesus says, go back and look at it, who had not bowed the knee who had actually continued to keep what was going, going. There were a few embers. And the truth of the matter is, if it still bothers you that you might be asleep, then the likeliness is, is that you are not quite there. And it's time now to fan that into flame. That's what Jesus is saying. Fan it into flame. For heaven's sakes, get curious about this. Find some friends that you can talk to. Join a small group, for heaven's sakes. Find out what these fellowship groups are about and sign up for one. Wake up, Jesus is saying. Fan those things to a flame. Fourthly, Jesus comes to His people and says, I want you finally to buy from Me gold. He says, first of all... To um, do the first things. Second of all, to endure patiently. Third, wake up. And then fourth, buy from me gold. That's what we just read about from the church there in Laodicea. Was to buy gold from him so that you can be rich. Does Does that strike anybody as a little weird? How is it that someone who can't afford to buy gold, buy gold? The only people that can buy gold are rich people. So how can you buy something when you don't have something? That passage confuses me when I look at it. Well, in my opinion, I think that John had a certain verse in his mind. I think when John wrote this, he had Isaiah 55, verse 1 in his mind. When Isaiah said this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, let me ask you a question Who are the only people that can buy something without money? You ever thought of that? Y'all, the only people that can buy something without money are beggars. Beggars are the only people that can do that. And Jesus is basically charging these churches. He's charging the church at Laodicea and all of us now to put on the demeanor, to put on the attitude, the outlook, the posture, as it were, of a beggar. And that means that these churches are to be known for their humility. It means that we are to be a group of people that have no ounce of cockiness to them. There should not be an ounce of condescension among the people. You know, the condescension, the looking down upon among Jesus' churches. There should be no arrogant. In other words, the collection of these churches ought to be a group of beggars who are telling other beggars where we happen to have found bread. That's what it means. In other words, my friends, if you're noticing that there's a spiritual hunger inside of you, Jesus is looking and saying, you're in the right place. Because the only thing that qualifies you to come and to buy is to realize that you are not qualified. And that brings us to the second and last point. Jesus charges His people to actually do the first things. He charges them to wake up. He charges them to endure patiently. And He charges them to buy from Him gold. And then He comes and He promises a reward. Uh, The Heritage Dictionary defines reward as something that is given or received in recompense for worthy behavior. But hopefully by now you'll realize how odd this definition would be if it was actually applied to this passage. Because they're all tied to promises for people who what? Did you read this? To the one who overcomes. To the one who overcomes. There's a commentator by the name of Dennis Johnson, for whom I'm deeply indebted for this particular uh, message that we've had that we've got tonight, who looked and said, "That's a weird statement." Who keeps saying, "To the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes," because these people were the ones who themselves were being overcome. They were being overcome. They were being waylaid, washed away. Their faith was failing. All kinds of bad things were happening to them. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The only way in which you're qualified is by realizing that you don't qualify. The only way to overcome is to be overcome and to go to Him as a Savior and not as a helper. You see, Jesus comes with a wonderful set of promises, great and glorious things that He offers to His people, not as a reward, but the result of having found yourself to be in Him. And he gives this list of astounding images. Do you remember them from last week? He says, there's a tree of life that I'll give you. There's a a crown of life. There's hidden manna. There's a white stone that I'll give you. a, A morning star. Perfect white garments. I'll make you a pillar in the temple. I'll even give you a seat on the throne of God. Wonderful, glorious things. And the truth of the matter is we don't have time to go all through those things. I'm not going to try. But to sum them all up, they all really mean one thing. You know what it means? It means that these promises hold out the hope of wholeness to an absolutely broken people as they come and look to Jesus. That's it. All of those images, all of those rewards are a promise of wholeness to broken people. Look the hope that we have for, in front of us, what I'm referring to as wholeness, is the hope of being what you were created to be. The dysfunction that's in your life, y'all, is not the way it was meant to be. It was not God's intention. You were created to be a perfectly integrated, whole person where the, where the sum is more than just a total of your parts. And the truth of the matter is, is we long inside of ourselves to be right, even for the first time. You see, the Ephesians are coming, they're promised a tree of life. What does that mean? By a tree, he looks and says, We're promised eternality. Why? Because it's going to go on forever. But we're also promised abundance, provision coming for us. The church at Smyrna is promised a, a crown of life. A crown. In other words, God is saying, you were intended to rule. You are just like the Pevensey children in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, destined for the four thrones of Paravel. And inside of your own hearts, you know that you were intended to be cosmically important, to count, no matter what your parents or your background or your friends have beaten you down and tried to make you believe. Jesus holds out a crown of life for you to be what you are intended to be, one who rules He promises the Philadelphians that they are going to be a pillar in the temple. A pillar, meaning He promises you stability. Good grief. Stability. Wouldn't that be nice? To not constantly be subject to the ups and downs of your friend's opinion of you, or of the circumstances that continue to swirl around your life. Jesus says, I'll make you a pillar. I'll give you something to stand on that will never be shaken. And then He looks finally and says... Uh, to these people that you were created for more the point in all of these things is you were created for more and to be honest with you the art that you engage in that touches into those things are the ones that really move you the movies you watch that affirm that you were built for those things are the ones that make you cry at the end of them you know why is it at the end I'm going to choose a Jane Austen film because there's some girls in the room yeah I watch Jane Austen but I I ain't a sissy Anyway, we watch Sense and Sensibility. I love this. It's one of my favorite Jane Austen flicks, right? And Emma Thompson has this glorious scene, this glorious scene at the very end of the movie. Do you all remember this? The whole time she has just absolutely been pining after Hugh Grant's character, whose name is... Oh, no. Look at that. My wife missed it. I gave her a quiz and she missed it. I can't remember his name. Mr.... Oh, come on now. Where's our Jane Austen people? You know, good, good preachers actually have these illustrations worked out beforehand. Uh, I didn't. Anyway, the whole movie, she is longing for this relationship with Hugh Grant's character. Dying until finally at the very end, he shows up at her house. And the whole time, she's been believing a lie. The whole time, she's been believing that he's found someone else. Edward. Edward somebody. Who? Yes, that's exactly right, Mr. Edward. Mr. Edward. And she looks up and finally he looks and reveals to her that he's not married to someone else and that his heart from the very beginning has belonged to her. And Emma Thompson, in what I think was a gloriously well-done moment, just collapses in tears because of what she realizes she was really made for. But come on, y'all. Every one of us, when we see those kinds of scenes, looks, and it's not just the scene. It's not just because Emma Thompson can deliver a line. It's because we look at that and say that is a cosmic picture of what's going on in my very own soul. Because we realize we were built to have someone love us in that way. We were built to be whole. And Jesus is looking and saying for all of these things that I've confronted you on. For all of these things that I've tried to encourage you with. And for all of these things that I charge you with. I'm offering to you wholeness. To be what you know you were created to be. Don't you want that? In your best moments? Let me finish with one last thought. The interesting thing about that list of symbols is that almost all of them are symbols of Jesus. It's a little exegetical nugget for you for the night. You see, in the book of Proverbs, Jesus is actually pictured as a tree of life. He is predicted to be the tree of life, the personification of wisdom itself. Jesus promises those from Pergamum a white stone. Well, Jesus Himself is the cornerstone laid in Zion, as the psalmist predicts. Jesus is Himself the hidden manna as well, we find out. And this little morning star that's promised to the church of Thyatira, we find later on in Revelation that Christ is the morning star. Do you see what that means? Look, the Laodiceans are promised a seat on a throne with Jesus. And what that means is that the end of all these promises is not just a blissful existence in wholeness heaven, but it's a person. And I think this is one of the most distinctive characteristics of Christianity and separates it from the rest of the world religions. Because in the end, my friends, you cannot separate the benefits of heaven from the chief citizen of heaven. Heaven is heavenly to those that are there only because He is there. The point of heaven is not streets of gold or 10,000 virgins or whatever it is your religion says that it is. My friends, the Christian longs for heaven not because it's the cessation of pain, though it certainly is, or because it's the fulfillment of what He was created to be, which it certainly is that as well. My friends, the Christian longs for heaven because Jesus is there. Because in the end, He didn't find a principle, but He found a person. In the end, God did not give us a bunch of rules, but He gave us a relationship. A living, breathing person. So that the universe is not abstract, it's not detached, but it is electric with the beauty of relationship. And at the very center of all is Jesus of Nazareth. Does that sound hokey to you? I, I've, I often wonder if that's a little too religi- religious or maybe too fundamentalistic for you. Because honestly, if it is, you've really missed something very central about Christianity. It's about Him, not you. It's at the heart of it all. And for some of you, I understand that this message is a bore. It's just a deeper irrelevancy. You're digging into more things that bore you to death. But you know, for others of you, and I think you know who you are, you didn't know how thirsty you were until this man began to uncover it for you this week and last week. And the truth of the matter is, in all of his judgments and all of his exhortation and all of his encouragements and all of his charges, what he offers to you tonight is himself. Interested? Let's pray. Lord, I pray very specifically tonight for perhaps a soul who is but doesn't know how to express it. We are indeed deeply and profoundly interested because we are surrounded, as it were, by the broken places on the inside where we don't have any wholeness. The world has beaten us down and so has our conscience. And to be quite honest with you, if we were simply to look at the actions that we've been involved in even for the last four weeks of school, we would be deeply ashamed to stand in front of you. And so we ask, Father, for a great revival of purpose, for a great revival of of behavior, that Christians on this campus would be a light, would not simply blend in, but would accept these charges for us to do the first things. To wake up. To come and to buy gold from You as refined and fire and to embrace all of the beauty that You hold in and of Yourself. Lord Jesus, we do not know how to grasp at You, and so Your Holy Spirit is going to have to do it. And so in the couple of minutes that we have during this last song, would You allow us to sing, not just out of a matter of habit and custom, but out of a longing for You to act and to draw near to Your people. Would You do that? For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.